Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today, we will be discussing Book 10 of Homer's Iliad, discussing the Night Raid. So to review a little bit, in Book 8, the Achaeans found themselves on the back foot, and the resurgent Trojans are feeling so much confidence that they camp outside of their mighty walls. This leads Nestor to pick out an embassy of Odysseus, Phoenix, and Ajax to try and persuade Achilles to return in Book 9. They are only partially successful. Achilles will only return to fighting once Hector begins to gut the ships with fire. As the Achaeans cast about for another way to try to get the advantage over the Trojans. And so they decide upon a night raid, or kind of spy mission. Diomedes and Odysseus go to the Trojan camp and kill some newly arrived allies, the Thracians, while stealing a set of majestic horses. One brief scholarly note is that there is some dispute about whether or not Book 10 is written by Homer, or whether it was some kind of later editorial interpolation. Some question it because it seems not to have any effect on what happens later in the book. If outstanding horses are stolen here, why don't we hear about them during the chariot races in Book 23? Classicist Malcolm Wilcock pushes back on the notion that there is no effect later in the story. Indeed, he calls our attention to the excitement the Achaeans seem to experience at the beginning of Book 11, when fighting reemerges. He suspects that their enthusiasm is buoyed by the successful night raid, whereas otherwise they might have been demoralized by the Trojan success and Achilles' choice not to return to the fighting yet. There are also stylistic arguments. Some people insist that the Greek resembles passages from the Odyssey rather than from the Iliad. In the end, it is difficult to say. Wilcock ends his consideration of the authorship question by saying, quote, We may accept that Book 10 is separable from the Iliad and surmise that it existed as an independent and no doubt popular item in the poet's repertoire. Such independence could explain the differences of language and style. But this does not preclude the view that the book's insertion here and any modifications that were necessary for that purpose were the work of the Iliad poet himself. End quote. So in a sense, we don't know for sure, but we can't rule out that Homer did indeed write Book 10. As I said in the first lecture, our general approach is to treat the Iliad as a carefully ordered aesthetic whole. I will continue to interpret it as such. And we might also say that we have two options. <clears throat> we can carefully read Book 10 with a view to learning as much as we can from Homer, or we can lazily discard it saying that it was written by somebody else. I say that we read it carefully. With that said, let's turn to the text. In light of the events of Book 8 and Book 9 that were discussed a moment ago, Agamemnon can't sleep. Homer describes this with a beautiful simile. Quote, His mind kept churning, seething, like Zeus's bolts when the lord of bright-haired Hera flashes lightning, threatening to loose torrential rain or pelting hail, or snow when a blizzard drifts on fields, or driving on, somewhere on earth, the giant jaws of rending war, so thick and fast the groans came from Atreides, wrenching in his chest, heaving from his heart, and rocked him to his very core. End quote. We get the impression at first that the simile is comparing Agamemnon's churning mind to Zeus's to Zeus threatening to loose rain or hail or snow, or war itself. 
But in the strictest sense, it is not Agamemnon's thoughts that are being compared, but rather his groans that are compared to those undetermined harsh weathers. But maybe these are related. The the undetermined weather, we don't know which one will come to be, may in some way reflect Agamemnon's thoughts, and so be the source of his groaning. That is to say, Agamemnon is at a loss for what to do. The Trojans now have the upper hand, and it isn't clear to him what can be done. So the groans coming thick and fast stem from his awareness that something needs to be done, but he doesn't quite know what that something is. Homer says that a recourse struck Agamemnon's mind as best. This is a striking way to put how a thought comes to us. Agamemnon is passive. He is struck by the thought as if it is from the outside. He's agitated about what to do before, but now he is struck. This raises an interesting question about how active or self-consciously we can play a role in our own thinking. I mean, when we read, we see things and can sort of actively employ some tenets of close reading. But it often feels like, at least for me when I'm reading, a thought comes to me as opposed to me actively grasping it. Now, however this may be, Agamemnon settles on going to Nestor to figure out what can be done. In some sense, Nestor has begun to take on the role of ruling the Achaeans. After all, he suggested and organized the embassy from Book 9. Nestor gets to make his prudent suggestions without having to shoulder the responsibility that comes with whether or not things turn out well. Agamemnon meets Menelaus, who is also awake, and strikingly, Menelaus has something like Nestor's eventual plan in mind as he wonders if it is possible to spur a volunteer to go and spy on the Trojans. Agamemnon wakes up Nestor, who in turn wakes up Odysseus, relatively gently, and then he wakes up Diomedes, roughly, digging his heel into his ribs. Diomedes is young, and so Nestor shows him his place. Once the most important of the Achaeans are gathered, Nestor proposes that Nikian infiltrate the Trojan camp and perhaps capture a man, or overhear something important. Nestor emphasizes that great glory would attend the man who completed such a daring action. But he also says that a rare young black lamb would go to that man as well. Nestor makes sure that there is a manifest immediate reward available, and not merely the abstraction of glory, which ultimately promises good things in the future as opposed to the present. Diomedes volunteers to go, but he adds a crucial innovation to Nestor's plan. Quote, If another comrade would escort me, though, there'd be more comfort in it, confidence too. When two work side by side, one or the other spots the opening first if it kills at hand. When one looks out for himself, alert but alone, his reach is shorter. His sly moves miss the mark. End quote. Diomedes wishes for a comrade to go with him. He notes the confidence that attends us when a friend goes with us. And isn't this simply true? That when you go anywhere or do anything with a friend, with a man who is capable, you think that everything will turn out for the best. That an unpleasant event can be endured. That a walk through city streets at night will be safe. That you won't feel as silly trying a new or heavier lift at the gym. That you have more confidence in your writing after a friend has read it. The warmth and assurance that we feel when we don't have to go it alone is the feeling that Diomedes is describing. They prepare to go on the raid, being armed lightly for the occasion by Thersimides and Meriones. 
Athena sends a divine sign to bless their venture, and Odysseus prays for success, while Diomedes prays for success and offers to make a sacrifice. Homer then gives us a sharp contrast by bringing us to the Trojan camp, where they are putting together their own spy mission or night raid. The image of Hector's tactical acumen isn't flattering. Uh, and maybe the tactical acumen of the Trojans as a whole here. And it does prepare us for later moments in the poem when Hector's tactical thinking is compared to that of the Trojan Polydamus, who consistently has a better understanding of what is required in order to be successful. Whereas Nestor had promised glory and an immediate tangible rewards to the volunteer, Hector offers only a physical or tangible reward. Strikingly as well, Hector offers a reward that he is not currently in possession of, or that he couldn't give should this man return successfully. Uh, he offers the best of the Achaeans' horses by the fast Achaean ships. In this moment, he doesn't say whose horses, but the volunteer Dolon adds specificity. Almost as much as <laughs> he basically says, You're saying that I'll get Achilles' horses? Hector promises him Achilles' horses. Would Hector really give Dolon Achilles horses if they're ultimately successful and manage over the rest of the war to kill Achilles? Would Dolon even survive the length of the war if he was to receive them? Is this a hollow promise? Is Hector being shrewd? I'm not sure. Um, but another set of differences between the two camps is, of course, that Dolon does not ask for a comrade to go with him. And whereas Diomedes and Odysseus were armed by their comrades, Dolon arms himself. Is there greater camaraderie amongst the best of the Achaeans? That two men are better than one is immediately confirmed. Odysseus spies Dolon from, a far, from far away. He proposes to Diomedes that they let him go past and then drive him towards the Achaean ships so they don't lose track of him. <clears throat> what follows is a sad but instructive moment. Dolon hears Odysseus and Diomedes running toward them. He can't see them yet. Of the senses, we might say that touch is least likely to deceive us, hence why Thomas wanted to feel Christ's wounds. Then sight is more reliable than hearing. For if two people got into a fight and I didn't see who started it, I would have to rely on each person's speeches about what happened, and it would be hard to untangle. So then hearing would be less immediately reliable than seeing. It would seem to follow, therefore, that when one approaches an enemy's camp, that a good heuristic for interpreting what you hear is to assume that the footsteps are hostile. Indeed, even in his own camp, when Agamemnon woke him up, Nestor immediately replies, who goes there? He's wary. Instead, Doan assumes that friendly forces have come to recall him, that Hector in particular has decided to call off the mission. He assumes that Hector cares about him. He feels that he's important enough and that he has proved himself deserving of care precisely because of his initial willingness to even accept this dangerous mission. After these thoughts flash through his mind, he suddenly sees his enemies. So while sight is more reliable for ascertaining some things with greater certainty, it also, especially in the dark, has a shorter range of perception than hearing. Diomedes and Odysseus capture Dolon, and he begs for his life. At the beginning of their interrogation, Odysseus says to him that death is your last worry. Dolon now understands himself as duped by Hector. 
the prospect of laying hold of Achilles' horses inspired mad, blind hopes in him, hopes that may have partially conditioned his response of interpreting the footsteps earlier as friendly footsteps. At any rate, he discloses what Hector had in mind, namely that he hoped that Dolon would be able to discern whether or not the Achaeans were shell-shocked into not putting men out to carry on the watch, or to see if the Achaeans were leaving the Trojan shores. At the prospect of hearing that this unfortunate man thought that he could have or even make use of Achilles' horses if he had them, Odysseus cruelly laughs at him. Odysseus asks him a series of six questions, uh, asking about things from the location of Hector's war gear to what maneuvers are next. Dolon, in real emotional duress, doesn't answer all six of the questions, but he does reveal that while native-born Trojans are keeping a strong watch, the many allies who have come to assist them have not done so. He even goes out of his way to be helpful to Odysseus by singling out the newly arrived Thracians who are exposed on the flank and farther from the rest of the encamped soldiers. With this information in hand, Diomedes tells Dolon he is in his hands now and that he will kill him so that he cannot harm the Achaeans in the future. And with that, Diomedes struck him square across the neck, a flashing hack of the sword. Both tendons snapped and the shrieking head went tumbling in the dust. In this way, we seek a kind of escalation in the war. That is, in earlier phases of the war, especially those that exist prior to Homer's narration of the Iliad, we hear of different characters being ransomed. For example, later when Achilles kills Lycaon, we learn that Achilles had sold Lycaon for a ransom earlier in the war. Now there's a greater concern for the ultimate contest, whether or not uh, there will be complete victory or complete defeat. It's not about uh, just making like a little bit of extra money now. Odysseus and Diomedes approach the sleeping Thracians, and with the power of Athena, Diomedes kills 13 Thracians in their sleep, including their king. Odysseus drags the bodies out of the way so that when they steal the majestic horses, they won't have to trample over corpses, which the horses aren't yet used to. They return to camp safely. Ironically, then, they get something like the reward promised to Dolon with horses that seem fit for a god. To return then for just a brief moment uh, in conclusion to the authenticity question, we could say that with the artful comparison between the two camps making plans and this strange inversion of Dolon's hoped for reward and the clumsy Trojan tactics that are in some sense foreshadowed uh, or referred to later, uh, we could say this. If Book 10 isn't by Homer, it is at least by a man of the first rank who understood Homer's vision. All right. Well, I look forward to talking with you all about Book 11 next. Montana out.